I'm guessing what Pastor Andre is going to talk about. So here we go. Um, I want to help you think about what it means to have a creator. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that someone from the past, let's say 300 years ago, okay, 300 years ago gets teleported into the future and turns up in your bedroom. I mean, that's pretty scary. Why is he in your bedroom, right? But for some reason, he's in your bedroom and he's a really nice guy. And you're like, hey, guy from the past. And he's like, hey, guy from the future or girl from the future. And you and he's like, what's new? You're like, Let me show you some stuff. And you take him outside and, and you're not overly impressed by the things because you're used to them, right? But he comes outside and he sees this weird thing. It's like this... It's like this mysterious box type thing, and, and like you can see through the side of it, and it's got these weird, like round things on the bottom of the on the bottom of it. Do you know what it is? A car. That's right. But he doesn't know that, does he? Because he's from three hundred years ago. They didn't have cars then. That's right. Did you know that? Yeah, they didn't have cars. So there's this car there, and he's like, "Whoa, what is that thing?" And and you go, "What? Well, it's, it's a car." I mean, duh, everyone knows what a car is. So I don't know what a car is. And he's like, yeah, it's a car. He's like, well, what's it do? What's it for? Well, how, how are you going to help him understand? You could teach him. That's right. Good idea. You could show him good thinking. Yeah. Yeah, but you can't drive. That's pretty awkward, eh? You might get in trouble if you take him for a drive, yeah. But you get mum and dad to take him for a drive. But that would work. You could take him for a drive. You need someone that knows how it works, right? But you know what would be even better is if you had the guy that created a car. And if the creator of the car was your dad, like he was real smart, right? And he invented the car. Like I'm sure your dads are pretty smart, but they probably can't invent a car. So he invented a car and he, he's your dad and he's like, oh, I can explain to you what a car is because I actually created it. Let me show you what a car is. And he takes him out and he explains all the different parts and he shows him how it works and he teaches him all the different aspects of a car. You see, the, the only way you're going to know what something's for is by listening to the person who made it, right? And that's true of creation. See, I, I, I know this might shock you, but I wasn't alive when creation happened. Hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old because there's people in the room older than me. So that's a good giveaway. But there was someone who was there when the world was created. Do you know who it is? Good try, yes, but he didn't have the name Jesus Christ yet because he hadn't been born. God, that's right. It's just Jesus' default answer, right? But yeah, it was God because God did it, right? God was right there. He was the one at the very beginning doing everything. And so who's the best person to ask how creation happened? Makes sense, eh? No, I know. We should ask some scientist guy who wasn't there. That's a good idea, eh? He clearly knows more than God does, doesn't he? No, 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 that's right. He knows nothing. Well, he probably does know some stuff, but he doesn't know about creation like God does because God was there. And God has given us a book, right? He's given us the Bible. and In the Bible, he tells us exactly how he did it. And Pastor Andre is going to be talking to us a little, about, a little bit about in the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. But we'll have to wait to see what he says and see if maybe I'm way off base. But let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, that you did create a heaven and an earth, and we're here in it. And that, Lord, we can see it and behold your glory, and that you've not left us in the dark, but you've told us all about it. 
And we pray that, Lord, as we listen to Pastor Andre, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that even these little children who have received all of the blessings of the covenant would grow up in their understanding and their love of you and that they themselves would accept all of the glorious promises that they've received. Help us as a covenantal community to gather around them and to show them the love of Christ and to point them to the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, well, it is a real joy for me to be here. I was, as I was sitting there, maybe Logan doesn't even know this, the first time I was in this room was in 2008. I came on a, on a little tour through New Zealand to, uh, to meet some of the brothers and sisters in Christ, and somehow I ended up here for a worship service on one Sunday. Um, so a real blessing to be back here again. And uh, Logan said he's happy to give me a kidney, the best I can offer is the eyes that I had to pluck out and the hands I had to cut off because of sin in my life. They must be all over scattered as we're all sinners and how desperate we need to live holy lives. Um, <clears throat> it is truly for me a, a great joy to be here with you. And uh, as Logan already said, I think there is a, there's a real understanding of, of belonging to the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that even when we have differences. And for you to invite me to stand at this pulpit to preach the Word of God is, is for me a sign of that. And I want to thank you and your elders, uh, Logan, for allowing me to be here. We had Logan over as well, so, um, so we share that, that unity in Christ. Please open your Bibles at the beginning. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 1, an easy chapter to find, I hope. That's right in the beginning of the Bible, and um, I encourage the children to open there as well. Those of you who can read, read with us. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read portions of the chapter. I would encourage you to go home tonight and read the whole chapter. I think most of us are quite familiar with it. But anyway, the very first verse in the Bible is, in the beginning, let me stop there. Where else do we find a verse beginning with, in the beginning? Anyone knows? John chapter 1, verse 1. So there in the New Testament, we have in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. You remember that? It's important because John is actually leaning very heavily on the fact that Jesus Christ is God. And he was there in the beginning. Anyway, let's go back to our text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and then God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day by the way children how do you know that it's evening how do you know that it's morning one day passed. Oh, sorry, I answered the question. You're a clever boy. I've seen you here before. What would you have answered? It's night and day, yeah? So you can see. Well, we didn't have the sun yet or the moon yet. That's created later, as we know. But God already set in the cycle of day and night. Now, if you move on a little bit, you know that God created in the, uh, the expanse. He, 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 he separated the earth the landmass from, 
from the waters. We know that he created plants and insects and all living creatures. But let's go now to um, the latter part and maybe let us read from verse 26. This is now the final day of creation and we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him, them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for you. And it was so, <coughs> pardon me, and God saw that everything that he made was good. It was very good. And there was evening, one day, and there was morning, another day. And that was the beginning of the day of rest. All right, let us pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, as we look at this very well-known verse in our Bibles, actually the very verse that that is the first revelation of who you are and what you've done. It is my prayer and the prayer of your, your people here this evening that, Lord, you will speak to us, that you will allow us to see how we fit in this picture of you being the creator and us being the creatures and yet with very special duties. I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you will encourage us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to hold firm to what we read and understand from this text and that our eyes will always be fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith and the one who was there in the beginning, the very word that created and now is the one seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord and King before whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Until you return, Lord Jesus, we pray. Bless us. In your name, amen. <clears throat> now, I don't know how many of you know, but um, maybe some of you obviously do, but in the 1970s, the big battle, as it were, in the Christian world was the battle for the inerrancy of Scripture because there was a, a very significant attack on the integrity of the Word of God. Professors at universities, um, those who call themselves doctors in theology, they, they decided that, that we can stand above the Word of God and criticize it as just a normal text, and then we can decide what we believe is true, what's not true. Um, and they openly said that the Bible's full of mistakes. Well, that gave rise to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy that was signed in 1978. This was obviously of significant importance because it is important for us as believers to know that the Word of God that we have, even in our translations, 
is still the infallible, inerrant Word of God. Just imagine for a moment it not be the case. Then you and I can take any portion of Scripture that we don't like and we can just tear it out, put it on the side and say, well, I like these parts, and we form a whole new religion according to what we like. Sounds familiar, actually, doesn't it? Many people actually physically do that. So this was of utmost importance for the church, again, to go and say the Word of God is true. The Word of God is infallible. It's without failures. But today, I believe that the battle that you and I need to focus on is the battle of the supremacy of Scripture, meaning that everything that we do read in the Word of God is without failure, is inerrant, in other words. And now, because we understand the nature of this Word, we say that this Word, because it is God's revelation, stands over and above all other authorities that tell us how this world works and how this world should function and how we should live our lives. Amen? The Word of God is supreme, and I think that is the battle you and I are facing today, because many, let's use the broader evangelical world, many Christians will say, well, we accept the Bible, but we also, like, like Logan rightly said, or asked that question, were the scientists there when things were, were created? But yet science have now been elevated almost higher than Scripture in many Christians' lives. What about, what about other forms of authority or books that we read? You know, um, very easily we, we fall into that trap and say, well, that was so well written, or that is so well articulated, or that fits so well within our culture that we readily accept that as the new authority over our lives. Well, I hope you can see then that we as believers in the Word of God have to stand for the supremacy of God's Word over all. And there are some reasons why, why you and I should do this. A few of them is what I will be focused on here this evening. First of all, God is creator. He created things. Not only things, he created everything. He created you and me. He created every tree that you see, every insect that you see, even the things that you don't see he created. That makes God the proprietor or the ruler over his creation. He is Lord over his creation. It belongs to him. He owns it. And then finally, God, the one whom, whom all these things belong to because it is his creation, he's the one to whom we as the creation need to give an account to. If he's created it, if he owns it, and we belong to him, then we must then truly understand that I live my life having to give an account to him. So, the very first verse in the Bible that we've just read is really the foundation of all of these things, as we now shall see. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And these verses, or this verse, introduces to us the, really the foundation on which everything is built in the Bible. This is, this is the first and the foremost, the most important revelation of God as it sets the scene for everything else that happens. If God was not the creator, if he was not there before, if he doesn't own it, then, then we can practically do anything we want. Then the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ has no meaning whatsoever. Then our sins won't be sin. <laughs> because if God's, not creation, if God's not the creator and we're not his creation, then 
then what accountability do we have towards God? So you see, Genesis 1 verse 1 is crucial for our understanding of how we as believers should live our lives. Now this, this verse is not difficult, and I'm, I'm going to prove it to you, not, um, well, children again. I mean, let's, let's aim at their level. Uh, but if you're a child at the age of 35, you're still included in this. You can raise your hand and answer just to show how simple this verse actually is. Are you ready? When you read it, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. All right? That's what the verse says. Can you see it in your Bibles? Clear as daylight. So if I ask the question, when did God create? Does the text tell us? Anyone? In the beginning, I heard someone whisper. Yeah? Clear as daylight. Isn't it? Right. If I ask the next question, who created? Who is responsible for the world's existence? Does our text tell us? Yeah? Look again, look again, look again. What does it say in the beginning? God created. Yeah. So God is the author of all things. It's very clear in our text. You don't have to have a theological degree to understand that. The next question is, what did God create? Does our text tell us what does God create? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And if we read on, we will see. That's why I added those other verses. Well, I didn't add them. I just read them because they're there. Um, but if you look at those other verses, it includes even us. as God created us in his image. So it unequivocally states that God who is eternal, God created the heavens and the earth at a specific moment which God calls the beginning. And when we read on in Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that this creation is beautiful, this creation is ordered, this creation is made for the honor and the glory of the one who created it. And part of our design as human beings is to reflect the glory and the majesty and the wonder of our creator. Now, if you believe Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, then there are certain necessary implications that must further be deduced from this text. So that the first part was easy. You can see it in the text. That's clear. Who, what, when. Right? We all agree on that one. It's a little bit different now when you come and say, okay, if that is so, what does it mean? What can we deduce then from this text to say, okay, how must I live my life? How do I understand science? How do I view the world? So let's do that. Firstly, the first thing that we can gather from this text is that God transcends his created world. That means that God stands above it. He's not dependent on it. God was present before creation. Now that's a concept that's difficult for us to understand. The fact that God is eternal. Because all of us are not eternal. I was on our way here. I was again listening to a song that my dear father so loved, and the song is, If I only had time, only time. And every time I listen to it, my heart breaks because I remember my dad who passed away. I cannot see him anymore. I can hear him somewhere in the distance in my memories. I loved him, but he's gone forever until, hopefully, by the Lord's grace, we will meet again. All right? That's us. We live and we die the plants that we plant, the trees. I mean, how many of you are good at gardening? I plant things and I have to, it's a 50-50 chance whether they're going to make it or not. Because things die even at our own hands. Well, God is not like that. God is eternal. He exists without a beginning. 
He is also self-existent, and I'm going to explain that a little bit. He's all-powerful, and he's the source of everything. So when we read, in the beginning, God, it means that God was there when the beginning started. Now, now do you want to see Logan Sweat? I warned him about this. I'm going to quote from a very, very good confession of faith. Are you ready? The Westminster Confession of Faith. All right, that's a good one. He says in... Um, in the chapter on God, it says, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in his being. Now, I have to do this by grace, and you will, and you will hear why. The London Baptist Confession of Faith adds a little word there. And it says, The Lord our God is but only one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself. They're adding this concept that as God is infinite, as God exists in all eternity, he exists without help. Now, I know the Westminster Confession believes the same. Uh, the Westminster divines, they understood this concept, that God doesn't need anything to exist. You and I need things to exist. You need food. You need oxygen. You need water. I mean, especially in this heat, you cannot go through a day like this and not drink something. Why? Because we are created beings who depend on other things. God is not a created being. He's infinite. He exists within himself with perfect harmony within himself without needing anything from the outside to sustain him. Secondly, what we deduce from this verse is that if God created this world, then it is obvious that it is his world. To use Logan's example with a children's talk, when he said that the creator of the car is the one who understands the car best. When God creates, it's not only that he understands, he goes and he says, but it's mine. It's my car or it's my creation. Everything that God created belongs to him. There can be no argument over the ownership of the universe. Our dear and beloved brother, who also is now with the Lord, R.C. Sproul, used to say that there's not one maverick molecule in the universe. It's true. Because all the molecules, as small as they can be, all of them belong to God who created them. That includes all the little molecules running up and down your body. <laughs> there's not one maverick molecule there. Maybe even the cancerous one are not maverick. They're still under the supreme decree of God who knows best. So brothers and sisters, if we read in the beginning, God created, it says to us that he creates, he's infinite, he exists within himself, he's all powerful, he was there before the beginning, and what he made belongs to him. He owns it, he sustains it, he loves it, he rules over it. And everything in it is created for a reason. It's created for his glory, for his use, for his pleasure. Let me quote again from, from the Westminster Confession. Listen to what they say. They say, he alone, he is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all things are, and has most sovereign dominion over it to do by them, for them, and upon them, whatever he himself pleases. In other words, it's his creation. He does with it whatever he pleases. It's his. And he does it for his own pleasure. 
in the Bible's expressions of the Trinity and God's, and God's existence as the three in one. We see how God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit exist in this beautiful union. And part of their union is to sustain and uphold the whole of creation. And we even read that the creation exists for the glory of the Son. It was made from Him and for Him. This is described for us here in John's gospel, as we've already looked. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing would be, because He is the author of all things. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He's the agent, and He's the sustainer of creation. When you get to Hebrews, maybe you want to turn there. In Hebrews chapter 1, that um, chapter we all know so well. He goes and he starts off there saying that, um, but in these last days, let me just see verse 2. He says, but in these last days, he has, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. That's the part we always remember of that verse. But he goes on and he says, through whom also the created world. He said he appointed him as the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Jesus Christ is the agent through whom God creates and is created by him and for him. When you go on, he says he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. You want to turn there. How, how the apostle then reaches out and he says, for, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I hope you get the picture that Jesus Christ ends up being the second person of the Trinity through whom God, the triune God creates and to whom God creates the whole universe. Do you know that you exist for the glory of Jesus Christ? That's why you exist, because creation exists for that reason. Do you know that you exist because of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity? Because it's through him that God, the triune God, creates. So the universe exists through him and for him, and therefore he's not only the creator, but everything in this world, its laws, its story, its involvement or its movement, everything about this world has its meaning in Jesus Christ. Every single thing. This then leads us to the next conclusion on the matter, um, is that only God can therefore then justly and rightfully prescribe how this world should function. This is not to be disputed. If God created if he owns creation, if it was made for his purposes, then he dictates how we as the created beings should live our lives. Amen? We cannot run around saying, I don't like the way that God speaks about male and female. We cannot run around and say, I don't like what God says about creation. I don't like about this law or that law in God's word. We come and we say, it's his world. I'm his creation. Therefore, I joyfully submit to him. Let me quote to you here um, John Brown. He was a Scottish Presbyterian. In a book he wrote of God, the author and object and the end of all religion. 
Listen to how he says this. He says, as he, referring to God, as God is infinitely more perfect than they and have brought them into existence, he hath an undoubted right and all sufficient fitness to uphold and govern them. I like that. If he's the creator, then God has all the right to tell you, you should live your life like this and not like that. So right off the bat then, if you accept the supremacy of God's word and you see that God created, then you have to accept the fact that God's laws and God's rules are to be obeyed. If we believe that God is the creator of the world and then deduce from this that this world belongs to him, then every creature is governed by his laws. Even when we don't like it, we're still governed by his laws. And this in turn then means that any individual, man or woman, us here this evening, every institution that exists, whether it be the church, whether it be the government, whether it be the family, we must, and I want to emphasize that, you and I and every institution that exists must joyfully submit to and align themselves to his revealed will. We have no choice for the believer that becomes his greatest joy. I love my God, my creator so much that I joyfully give myself to him in full obedience and acceptance of his will. So in that sense, man does not have untethered freedom at all, do we? We cannot just do whatever we please. We might think that we can choose our destiny, decide what we want to do, make up our own moral values as we go along, you know, let culture inform us. But every single time we do that, we will be doing this in violation of God's created order where God sets out for us the rules of engagement, as it were. He tells us how we should live. So the only true freedom then that we have is to live our lives within this secure and beautiful boundaries that God has placed around us where true blessing and satisfaction could be found. Don't think that your so-called freedom outside of the will of God is freedom at all. That's where true slavery lies. The freedom of the Christian is, I love my God, my Savior so much that I, that I joyfully, with, with, with exuberant joy, can go and say, Lord, I want to obey you because I love you so much and I understand this is your world. So let me give you a few examples of such boundaries. You know, we have, we have boundaries all over the place. I mean, in your family, there are boundaries. Do you tell your children to go to bed at a certain time? I hope you do. It's a struggle, but we do. Do you have boundaries when it comes to sport that you may participate in? You know, just imagine if you... If you any cricket players here? One. Oh, two. Oh, okay. Rugby players. Usually more of them. Oh, there we go. It doesn't matter what sport you do, there are rules. If you go on the rugby field and you decide you just, you're just going to go out with, you know, with a sword to make sure you get through the, through the scrum unharmed, you're breaking the laws and it's kind of dangerous. But you have decided that's a good idea. Or if you play cricket and instead of, instead of having a bat about this wide, you stand there with a bat this big, just wider and bigger than the weakest. You just stand there the whole day. Come on, bowl it. You see? There's, we have to play by the rules. And within the rules, there's joy. 
part of the fun of sport is actually keeping the rules and, and working at it so hard that you, can, that you can win a game fair and square. I won't speak rugby to you as a South African. But you do know that if you keep the laws, the law can be kept very, very stingedly by people sitting in a room upstairs as well. Anyway, any expression of man's freedom outside of God's parameters, especially the freedoms that we express in our own definitions of whatever we decide is right and wrong, what is good and evil, brothers and sisters, that's where disaster awaits the created being. That's where you will find your life be full of misery, where you will find your life void of any meaning where you'll find your life, you waking up in the morning thinking, why am I actually here? What am I doing? What use is this? This is His world. It is created for His purposes. He is the one who owns it. As a matter of fact, it was this very desire in man to reject this truth that led us into sin at the, first, at, at, at the beginning. When you go back, Genesis 3 verse 1, he says, now the serpent, what was he? He was crafty, more crafty than any of the other creatures or the beasts of the field that the Lord has made. And he said to the woman, what did he say? God's law is perfect and good. Just keep it. It will go well with you there. Is that what he said? No, he said, it's not good. It's not good. You shall surely not die. And so what did they do? Well, they listened. They rejected God's perfect law for them. They chose sin and ended up miserable beings, expelled from this place of communion with God, expelled from the Garden of Eden, never to return unless you return through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No sin entered the world when, when we decided it's good to reject God's lordship over us. We want to be in charge. We want the knowledge of good and evil so that I can stand here and make up my own moral values and you can do the same because I now have the knowledge of good and evil. I can make that choice. We have, we have, we have taken God's right to dictate how his world should work and we said we know better. And now that our eyes are open, we can do it. And what's the first thing we see with our open eyes? Nakedness. We had to be clothed. Man is not made to, to wear this responsibility of making decisions on what is right and what is wrong. It belongs to God and God alone. The right way for us then to live is to live our lives as created beings under the lordship of God who is our creator. It means acknowledging God as God, as Lord. It means then submitting myself in all things to him as Lord. Every single thing. I remember as a, as a younger man, and um, I just finished school, and I had to decide what am I going to study. If you are in that bracket of your life, I think it's a big decision, isn't it? Because it, it kind of sets you up for the rest of your life, usually. And uh, I, I was a believer, so what do you do as a Christian man? You pray. You ask God, show me, guide me, lead me, right on the wall. That'll be helpful. Give me a sign. And you look for signs everywhere. Well, just imagine living your life thinking, I don't care what God's desire 
is for my life in my profession or in my marriage or in where I go on holiday. What do I do on my holiday? A Christian man or woman, how do we live our lives? I want to live my life to the glory of Jesus Christ who owns me. I want to live it to his glory because I joyfully want to submit to his will. And that means at the end, you can actually decide whatever you want when it comes to the decisions you make on profession. I mean, not everything, but wholesomely, you know what I mean. You can decide to be an engineer and use it for the glory of God, or a teacher for the glory of God, or even a pastor for the glory of God. We get hung up because we want our own desires and our own flesh to guide us. We have Him as our Lord. It means that if, if, if any contradictory ideals and philosophies come our way, we should recognize them for what they are, and we need to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Colossians again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. As Paul writes to the Colossian church, he, he addresses a, a danger that they are facing. And, and brothers and sisters, we, we face the very same danger. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. What does is, what is Paul say? Paul says, God created you. Christ Jesus is the creator. Your life belongs to him. So in other words, when you hear a philosophy or an ideology or an idea coming to you, look at it and say, is this in line with the one who created me? If not, reject it. Don't live it. Don't believe it. Don't follow it. Now, to drill a little bit deeper into this concept, we need to embrace another word that we get from this, from this text, kind of, is the word sovereign. Now, we use that word a lot, don't we? The sovereignty of God. To be sovereign means to possess supreme, unlimited, unrivaled power and the freedom to act according to that power. That's sovereignty. We have a sovereign over us. He is now called King Charles III. All right. He's sovereign. Is he truly sovereign? Not really. But he has the power and the authority to act according to that sovereignty. He has, the, he has the authority to do so. If King Charles wakes up tomorrow morning, sorry, I mean, it's quite hot in here. If Charles wakes up, King Charles wake up tomorrow, and he decides, well, it's time for New Zealand actually to, to act more British, he can make that decision as a sovereign. He can actually even go, and I don't want to scare you, but he can even take our wonderful treaty and tear it up and say, hey, well, that's been how many years ago now? We're done with that. A new king is on the throne, a sovereign king who can exercise his power over us. Well, sometimes we think of God's sovereignty in such a way. God's sovereignty is not mingled with, with, with retribution and anger and desire to gain more. Everything belongs to him as it is. Sovereignty can be terribly bad in the hands of human beings, but it's not bad in the hands of God who truly is sovereign, who has all the power and the authority 
to do whatever he pleases and the freedom to truly act according to his sovereignty. Now, you and I, we usually use the word sovereign as it relates to our salvation. He's the sovereign Lord who can, who can call a sinner to himself. God has the power. He has the authority to save sinners without asking permission. I remember this so clearly in a, in a church back in Russia where I was, where I was associated with at one point. And, and my wife actually was in that church. And, and I was, oh, you're a dear brother. He needs a raise. Whatever you pay him, pay more. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, so in this church, they, they, they did not believe truly in the sovereignty of God when it came to salvation. And I remember speaking, speaking to the pastor about this. And, um, and <laughs> from the pulpit, he said that the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never save anyone against his will. That doesn't speak of a sovereign God. That speaks of a God who is waiting for man just to make that decision and him begging, oh, please be saved, please be saved. And he will never, never, ever, ever do anything against your human rights. No, God who is sovereign takes that sinner and he, and, and he gives him a new heart, a heart that cannot refuse him now. And he sovereignly saves him or her and they become children of God. But there's something else about God's sovereignty that we also need to understand. And let me go to John Brown again. Listen to what he says. He says, God is also sovereign in his lordship over his creation. He says, God's sovereign lordship embodies his authority. What the Lord commands, his creatures must do. In the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the covenant which Moses delivers to Israel after God sovereignly redeemed them from Egypt, God begins by identifying himself as whom? The Lord. He's sovereign. And on the basis of this identification, he goes on to utter the Ten Commandments. It is because God is the sovereign Lord who has the right and authority to tell his people, thus shall you live your life. It is he who we then shall obey, must obey, because he is Lord. He has all authority and he has absolute authority. He goes on, he says, that means that we should not waver in our obedience to him. Secondly, he says, his lordship transcends all other loyalties. Thirdly, he says that this authority or his authority over us exists in all areas of human life, not just in the areas that are arbitrarily called religious or sacred. Now, I can point all this, I can, I can take this point and I can bring it to you and I can ask you this question, now what? How are we going to respond to this text? It's an easy text. We know who created, we know when he created, and we know what he created. We deduced from that that this creation belongs to him. We are created beings, so we owe him. Now the question is, do you actually believe Genesis 1 verse 1? If this is God's world, and you are in it, then how are you living your life? The answer to the first question the question I ask, do you actually believe it? The answer to the first question will dictate what you do with the second question. If you truly believe Genesis 1 verse 1, your life will look different from someone who doesn't believe Genesis 1 verse 1. 
If you do not believe that God created the heavens and the earth, then you will have no reason whatsoever to live according to God's commandments. And let me, let me, let me go so far as to say that if you do not believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I can understand why you would even think that murder is okay. I understand abortion. I understand it because the people who are speaking about abortion are people who do not want to submit themselves to God who's creator, who said that life is precious. I can understand in their mind, if they don't believe in this God, that they can argue themselves to the point so debased that they can actually say abortion is a good thing. You see what's happening? This doesn't take you off the hook, though. Because God will judge the living and the dead. It's still his world. Not believing it doesn't make God suddenly disappear. It only makes you blind to his existence. And it puts you then among those rebellious ones who will one day face the Lord Jesus Christ as judge. And you will be condemned for all eternity in a place where God's wrath will be poured out over and over and over again. But say you profess to believe this, this verse. Say you take Genesis 1 verse 1, you write it on a piece of paper, put it on the fridge, remind yourself every day because this is what you believe. Could it be then that many professing Christians already fail in their Christian living at the very first verse of the Bible, this verse? I'm not talking about those who utterly reject God. We can understand kind of, we understand how a debased mind actually will will end up doing the things they do. But I'm, I'm talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. How can it be that we profess that we believe Genesis 1 verse 1, the foundation of the Holy Scriptures, and then we live our lives as if we don't? They do not make the connection between the fact that this is God's world and therefore God's rules must be applied to my life. And not only my life, to all life. That's why the church has a prophetic voice in this world to call out sin, to point it out, to tell those in authority, you are doing wrong here. You are, you are disobeying the Lord God who created you. To go to a mother or a father who abused their children to say, this is wrong. You are dishonoring the Lord God who placed you in a place of authority over your children. That's why we can go into schools and tell the teachers who teach, do not teach these things to my children. It is an abomination to the Lord God who created us. You see, we either live in this world where we understand who is Lord, or we just stand back and say, well, I like Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Beautiful. But it has no effect on my life. They struggle, or we as Christians generally, we struggle to plant this banner in our lives. So we need the warning that Paul gave us in Colossians 2. See to it that no one takes you captive with their false philosophies, with their empty deceit, with their human traditions, with these evil ideologies that we are just bombarded with day in day out do not fall for them you look at god and ask god how do you create this world to function and how do i fit in this world they are confronted with a con with the current gender issues with this pronoun dictatorship if you don't use the right pronoun you can you can actually end up in prison 
this, this ever prolonging LGBTQXYZ sexual perversion alphabet that we all just have to accept. Is this God's word? Is this God's moral values for us as Christians? Or is this where Adam and Eve ended up saying, we don't want God to tell us how we should live. We don't want God to tell us what man is, what woman is, how we should have our relationships within male and female context. You, you see how, how this verse actually affects our lives and how we live? We are redefining marriage. We speak about justice and we put a social in front of it and it becomes something completely different from true justice. And there are a thousand other ways this world wants us to order our lives. And, and we as Christians have to be warned and we have to be careful that we do not put our anchor down together with those who reject God's word and God's law. If we don't do that, the rapids will take us down and we will plunge down a waterfall and the rocks down there is waiting to crush the church of Jesus Christ who have compromised with the world. They are carried away by the currents of the time. And we have this insistence in our society and it crept into the church. As long as we get along, that's perfectly fine and that's what we aim for. You know what? We can get along by being true to the Lord Jesus Christ and maybe even win some of them over to a true obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ to God who created them. And because they do not have Genesis 1 verse 1 banner firmly planted in their hearts, they like Snow White are biting into that poisoned apple and we eat it and we destroy our souls just like Adam and Eve did in the garden when they rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ and God and the Holy Spirit. So let me call on you this evening, brothers and sisters. You're not, you're not in my spiritual care as it is, but you are in my spiritual care right now under the Word of God. Amen? I call on you this evening. Start here. Start with Genesis 1 verse 1. Memorize it. Maybe you are that kind of person who likes to put verses on your, on your fridge. It's a good place. I won't say some of the other places we like to put verses where it's easy to sit and read. Anyway, it doesn't matter. As long as you've got verses to read, bring the Word of God into your life and then start believing this. God is your creator. God is your proprietor. He's the sovereign Lord. He owns you and you owe to Him a fruitful, obedient, joyful, obedient life. When you firmly put that in the bank, then the next question that is easy to answer, and by the way, the answer, as you shall see, is such a blessing here, I'm nearly done, is the answer that we find in the Psalms. Turn with me to Psalm 24. That'll be, that'll be kind of the, the closing psalm, all right? For those of you who do not know, in Logan's email that he sends out to pastors preaching here, he has there a beautiful sentence that says, the church will feel, kind of loosely translated, the church will feel done in if you only preach a 25-minute sermon. I like that. All right, well, thank you for your grace extended to me this evening. Psalm 24, he says, a psalm of David, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. 
David must have believed in Genesis 1 verse 1. See that? And David organized his life accordingly. Look at verse 2. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Speaks about the transcendence of God. And who shall stand in his holy place? Associated with David's knowledge of God being the creator comes this, comes this understanding of God's differentness. He's so different from us. He stands above us. He's holy. He transcends his own creation. This God who is clothed in splendor and majesty, thrice holy, 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 so utterly different and, and highly exalted above his creation. How can anyone come into his presence, says David? This is on the other side of Adam and Eve's sin, after the fall. Look at verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And you and I read that and we look at our hands and what do we see? Impurity. We look at our hearts and we see more impurity. Can you and I come into the presence of this God who created us? This God who expects us now to live according to his law. And we take his law and we read it and we see right from the first law, I'm not having him alone as my God. I've added a hundred other things that I love. Keeping his name in, in, in honor. Am I truly doing that? How many thoughts do I have in my mind that is sinful? That's why I say you can, you, you can find hands and eyes everywhere spread. Of Christians, you should have plucked them off and cut them off because we're sinners. And the question that David asks is, this God to whom the whole world belongs, how can I get to him? How can I stand before him? How can I be in his presence? And he says, there's only one way. I need to be pure like he is. I need to be holy as he is. And after Adam's sin, we know that none of us are. The world in which God placed us to live in is now defiled by evil. It's defiled by our nature, by our flesh, by falsehood, by deceit. It is, it is a complete rebellious state that man finds himself in. So who can go there? Look at verse 6. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of Jacob. Selah, you know, oh, wonderful. You will want to love him though, don't you? As a created being within you, there's this desire you created in his image. I want to be with him. I want to love him. I want to submit myself to him, seek him. And as you do, you will see that you just cannot get close enough to him. He's holy and I'm not. But you will not stop seeking. And then while you live in this world, seeking God, always falling short of his glory, you look and you, and, you, and you lift up your head. And what do you see? Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. That the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord. Capital letter L. O. R-D, the Lord, Jehovah, God, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let me ask you the question. Who is the King of glory? Our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the King of glory. 
He's the one that can stand in the presence of his father with a pure heart, an absolute pure heart. He's the one that can come into the presence of God who created the heavens and the earth, and his hands are absolutely pure and clean. He's the one that takes us through the torn veil in the temple, and he brings us from the outside of Eden through those angels saying, you cannot come in. He brings us in, and he takes us through Eden, and he presents us into the presence of where God sits on his throne. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So here we are, God's creation. I want to live according to his law. I find myself completely completely incapable of doing so. And I stand, I said, but I, I love Genesis 1 verse 1. God created the heavens and the earth. It's his world. I want to obey and I can't. And I look and I see there is one who did. And it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is fulfilled. That finally you have a man who unlike the first Adam is able to be truly fruitful to reign and rule over the creation in a manner that pleases God. As man, the Lord Jesus Christ restored that which Adam messed up so wonderfully, and you and I have followed in his footsteps. But in Christ Jesus, you and I find ourselves there, joyfully therefore, committing ourselves to him. Brothers and sisters, this is not, at the end, a question of, of legalism, it's not a question of, you know, am I ticking the boxes? It is a question of, am I having my, my focus, my life, my everything wrapped up in the perfect obedience and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is by faith that I can please Him. And He has therefore prepared for you in the Lord Jesus Christ good works. So here's what I want you to live your life by, not me. I think that's what the Word of God teaches this is God's world. And if you agree on that, I won't mind an amen. Do you believe this? This is God's world. Secondly, we are created by God to live in His world. Amen? This, this world doesn't belong to anyone else. Thirdly, we are designed according to God's wisdom. Amen? If you have an XY chromosome, rejoice. If you have two X chromosomes, rejoice. Even in those rare occasions when it's mixed up genetically, it is messed up because of the effects of sin. And even then, God is in that sin, reaching out to, to the effects that that sin has on that individual with love and grace and mercy and beauty. He changes our lives. So, number third, uh, the third number, the third point, we are designed according to God's wisdom. Fourthly, we should therefore live according to God's revealed will. Whatever God says, I do. In my office back in a church that I pastored in South Africa, there was this the sticker on the door. One of the previous pastors must, must have thought it's a good idea. It, it could have been someone else. But anyway, the sticker was there on the door. And it said, if God said it, I believe it, that settled it. Did you know what I did? I took a sharpie. Which line do you think I rubbed out? God said it. Whether I believe it or not, it's settled. Amen? If God has set this world into being, that's how we as human beings should live. Whether we believe it or not, this is the way. But for us as, as Christians, we can believe it in Christ. Then finally, I can joyfully 
submit myself to God's divine rule. Knowing that God created, knowing that he owns me, knowing that I have rebelled against him, knowing that Jesus then came into this world, redeemed me, brought me back to a better place than Adam was, in the very presence of God where one day we will be presented, how? Pure, blameless, without spot or any wrinkles. We will be in his presence. Knowing that, there's no other way than joyfully submitting myself. Do you wake up in the morning and say, oh, those horrible Ten Commandments. How I hate them. I want to murder today. I want to... I want to break the law. No Christian ever can think like that. Why? I wake up and I think, oh man, murder was in my heart again. You know that word raka, whatever it is in my language, I've probably said it or thought it. Looking at a woman with any lust in your, in your heart. You remember that verse, what Jesus said? You already committed adultery. I don't wake up in the morning thinking how heavy the law of God is upon me. I woke up. I wake up every morning thinking how wonderful the grace that is extended to me and the ability in Jesus Christ to be pleasing to God who created me. I hope that's an encouragement. Let us live our lives to the glory of Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord God, we are so quick to, th to find other, other things in our lives, whether it is in our own flesh whether it is outside authorities and we replace the one who truly has authority over us and we replace it with things, institutions, people, and our own flesh. And how often do we find ourselves then miserable? How often do we find ourselves there living in constant anxiety and depression and fear, an unfulfilled life? Your word sets it out so clear that even children can understand that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And all that is in it, he created and he said it is good. And when he created us, Adam, he said it is very good. Created in the image of God to reign and to rule over all of this that you have created. The smallest little insect, the biggest mammal, even the fish in the sea, Lord, the birds in the air. We are supposed to reign and rule as vice regents of God. And what have we done, Lord? We squandered that. Instead of being rulers over the world, the world now reigns over us and it kills us. It destroys us. It poisons us. How wonderful it would be in the new heavens and new earth when we will finally be again in that place, in Christ Jesus, viewing him, the one with his, arm, with his hands pierced, the slain lamb, looking upon him, our redeemer, our savior, saying, it is because of him I'm here. And in this new heaven and new earth, the lion and the lamb will be happy to lay again together in peace. And we will enjoy even more so than Adam and Eve did in the garden, this blessed, oh so blessed union that we will have with Christ Jesus. Because we will also understand that the only reason we are there is because of grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore to him and him alone belong glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen.